Well, good morning. Good to be with you again this morning. I got uh, new glasses this week, um, and I see very clearly right now. Um, if you've had the experience of getting new glasses, uh, you'll know it's an, always an interesting experience when you get a new... <laughs> Did you get new ones this week too? Two weeks ago. Very good. I love it. Um, but it's always an interesting experience, right? Like, you, you think you can see pretty well, and then you go get your eyes checked, and you put on the new glass, you're, oh, I wasn't seeing well at all. I see much better now. Um, so I can see much better now. We had this experience with, with our youngest, Lydia. Um, in March, we discovered that Lydia needed glasses. We're all watching a movie together as a family. We're just sitting on the couch watching a movie, and the movie ends, and the credits are rolling. And Lydia's like, why are we still watching this? There's nothing on the screen. And we said, no, we're watching the credits. We want to see who's involved, the names of the people involved with the movie. And she's like, I can't see any names. There's nothing on the screen. And we said, oh. So I took off my glasses and put them on her. And she said, oh, I can read it now. So she and I have pretty much the same prescription. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, but we didn't know that she needed glasses. She didn't know that she couldn't see well. And we didn't know that she couldn't see well. It, but now she has cute glasses and she looks great in them. Um, but life is like that. We don't know what we don't know until the lenses get changed and we can see more clearly. There's a, a whole bunch of life is like that. Uh, we don't know that things might be different than the way that they currently are until someone comes in, invades our reality and shows us, well, things could be different. And you go, oh, you know, you're right, they could. The nation of Israel... Uh, as we saw last week, is in that kind of place. Their lenses are all wrong. They've got the wrong... I mean, they have lenses on, but they're the wrong prescription. They're taking them the wrong direction. They're they're worshiping idols. They're involved in political instability. The king is in charge of the economy. The gods are in charge of the nations. And at the moment, Baal seems to be in charge of Israel. The nation is worshiping Baal. No one's looking out for the weak. There's not enough to go around. And so the weak and the outcasts are out of luck. Death is the end of everything. They didn't know what they weren't, what they didn't know about the way the world worked. They just didn't know. But when God invades the world, one of the things he does is to undo the things that we just know to be true. He undoes those things and he invites us into a much bigger world than the one that we're currently inhabiting. He expands our imaginations and our realities so that life gets much more fascinating. It gets much more real, much more clear, with more dimension and color and depth and life to it than we had ever imagined before. He changes our lenses so that we can see reality for what it really is. In our passage today, Elijah is going to bring a whole new set of lenses to the nation of Israel. And just before we dive into it, Elijah is super disruptive. Just like we know, again, if you've had this experience, you put on a new set of lenses and your brain is not adjusted yet. I didn't have, thankfully, I just saw more clearly this week, but sometimes you put on a new set of lenses and your brain's not adjusted and you're like, this is, I'm getting nauseous. This is not right. Sometimes it's like that. And that's the way Elijah is for the nation of Israel. Like he just disrupts everything. He makes the people nauseous. When the word of the Lord comes to the people in Elijah, it's really strange and disruptive to the nation. It just does not work the way that they um, expect it to. 
So putting on the right prescription is, is kind of what we're about today. Elijah's nauseating, but that's because he's putting the right lenses on, helping the people to see reality for what it really is and what God is like also. So let's pray and we'll jump into 1 Kings. God, we do ask you this morning that you would put the right prescription and the right lenses on us. Help us to see you and see reality for what it really is and for what you really are like. And then we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and uh, indwell us in such a way that we might live as though, Jesus, you really are king and the Father, you really are ruling and creator over all this. That, that life uh, is bigger and better and with more, more color and uh, more vivid than we imagined that it was. God, invade our realities today by your word and shape us to be more like Jesus so that we might live out your life and your kingdom uh, where we are. Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you and we praise you this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just a quick reminder, last week we looked, Ahab is king of Israel. He's a terrible king. Uh, he's married to Jezebel, who's from Sidon. And um, that's kind of a mess. Uh, she's from Sidon, and she brought Sidon's gods, Baal. So Baal worship is kind of the new religion uh, of the nation of Israel. God's people are now worshiping other gods. And Baal, just, uh, just for your info, is a local fertility god who supposedly, his job is to control things like the rain. That's kind of his purpose. So he has a real economic um, uh, uh, kind of role. He helps things grow, which runs the economy of Israel. So, and the king's job in a nation at this stage is to protect the economy. That's a like number one thing he's supposed to do. It's make sure that the economy functions the way it's supposed to go and protect the people with military and uh, those kinds of things. But if the economy is not functioning, it doesn't matter. Again, last week we talked about the terrible state that Israel is in. At the end of chapter 16, the nation of Israel is basically in the same place that Canaan, the Canaanites were in when Israel invaded in the Exodus and drove the Canaanites out. They've become the Canaanites. They've taken off the good lenses that God gave them and they put on bad lenses intentionally and purposefully they did this. They're, they're worshiping other gods. They're sacrificing their own children. Political chaos is the name of the game. The Lord needs to do something, as we saw last week. We need you to act, Lord. This week, uh, in kind of our culture, we saw we need the Lord to act also. The, the world hit a million documented COVID deaths. Uh, in this country, we had, by all accounts. I didn't watch it, but by all accounts, it was the worst presidential debate we've ever had. Then the president and a number of people around him tested positive for COVID. I mean, we need some stuff to happen. We need the Lord to show up. We're in the same place. And just as a note, like everybody else, Grace and I were praying for the president's full and speedy recovery. He was elected to do a job and now he's sick. And uh, so we pray that he recovers and can do the job he was elected to do. In our passage this morning, we see that the Lord actually does show up and he does do something. The Lord invades this terrible situation that Israel's in. 
Things are terrible, and the Lord steps in to act by sending his word through a prophet. This prophet is going to bring better lenses with the proper prescription. Just a couple of words about prophets. Their job was to bring the word of the Lord to the people in confrontation with the powers. So Elijah here confronts the king, confronts the kingdom. He confronts the nations and their boundaries. He confronts economic systems. He confronts systems of power. And he even confronts death itself. Prophets look at the world and they help the people to look at the world at a world that seems like it's inevitable, like this is just the way it is, the prophets help the people to look at the world and see that God is doing something different. It doesn't have to be the way that it is. They speak the word of the Lord into a situation that changes the situation and changes the world uh, eventually. So that's the prophet's role. Some of the things that Elijah, we're going to see Elijah confront are things like the king could be different. We could worship the Lord and not false gods. The economy might function differently than it does. War and violence don't have to be this way. The oppressed and the outcast don't always need to be oppressed and outcast. You and I don't have to be enslaved to sin and injustice. And the big one is death is not in control. The Lord is. So for the next while in the book of first and then into second kings elijah and elisha are going to be the main characters of this story this book is called kings but elijah and elisha kind of take over center stage for a while in this book um because the kings are basically uninteresting at this point they're just doing the same things same idol worship they're failing in their roles they're not good so elijah and elisha these become the the important figures in the book so God is invading a system that is the, the monarchy, the, ki- the system of kings. He's invading that system that has been corrupted and evil. And the prophets are going to be kind of the method of his invasion. By the way, the prophets are weird. They're just strange guys. Um, again, they're inviting Israel to see the world in a different way. And you have to be kind of strange and weird for that to, to, to see the world differently and to, and to invite the, the Lord into it. Along the way, as we, as we look at Elijah in this passage today, we're going to see how Jesus also has invaded the world and how his word and his life are constantly available to us, breaking down barriers and inviting us into a new, more abundant, full life. So that's kind of, kind of what we're going to do today. So kind of the outline here is, first, God's, we're going to see how Elijah invites God to invade God's people. Second, God is going to invade the nations through Elijah. And then third, God is going to break that last boundary between life and death. God's going to invade even death itself. So first, God is invading God's people, verses 1 to 7. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there won't be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, go east and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And then sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Um, 
just a quick start, Elijah shows up and claims authority over the rain. I mean, that's some pretty serious... Uh, he's a confident dude. Um, it says Elijah is a Tishbite from Gilead. Uh, we'll have the map up here and just show you where Gilead is. Um, you can see Israel there in the middle is all the green. On the west side of the Jordan River uh, is kind of the institutional structure, this institutional center uh, of Israel. On the east side of the Jordan, it's still green. It's still part of Israel. That's the region of Gilead. You remember uh, when Joshua brought the people into the land, some of the tribes settled on the east side of the river. That's where Elijah is from. We don't know where Tishbe is exactly, but it's somewhere there in Gilead. So just right off the bat, Elijah comes in from the outside. He's an outsider. He's an Israelite, but he's not from the center. He's not from Samaria or Tirzah, the, the capitals uh, of Israel. He's, he's an outsider. He's an outsider to the palace and religious intrigue that we've been watching over the last several chapters. Kind of like when the people spoke of Jesus, what good can come out of Nazareth? We might get the same idea here. What good can come out of Tishbe? Like, nothing. That's, that's not the place where good things come. And this outsider walks into Samaria, where Ahab is king, and claims authority over the rain. He speaks God's word, not as a prediction of what will happen, but he is claiming the authority to confront, resist, and oppose the powers. He's saying, no, I have authority over the rain. Now, this does a whole bunch of, this is super disruptive. First, again, Ahab's job is economic. Now, if you know the ancient Middle East, water... (laughs) is essential to life and any economic... All the towns and cities are located where you can get water. If you can't get water, you can't function or live. You can't survive without water. So Elijah is confronting Ahab's power to be a king. He can't be a king if he can't have water. And Ahab has gone to Baal. Remember, Baal is a fertility god. Like... Baal's job is to send rain. So he's not only confronting Ahab, he's also confronting Ahab's God, Baal, and saying, no, Baal's not God, Yahweh is. And I'm his messenger. I'm his representative. So Ahab, your whole way of life can't exist. And I just want to bring this to us. This passage reminded me, in kind of a negative way, of Jonah going to Nineveh. You remember, Jonah walks into Nineveh. He doesn't say, hey, here's, here's the good news. God is, no, he says, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. That's all. That's his entire message to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites respond, oh my word, we have to repent. The Lord is going to destroy us. Elijah walks into God's people And says, no rain. And what do God's people do? Nothing. Nothing. Nineveh hears the word of the Lord and repents. Evil, terrible Nineveh. God's own people hear the word of the Lord. And they don't pay any attention. 
Nineveh is going to bring judgment on Israel. And just a question for us. Are we more like Nineveh or are we like Israel? Do we imagine ourselves as God's people and therefore we don't need to hear God's word and repent? Or do we recognize our complicity in evil and then we repent when God invades with his word? Okay, so Elijah gives this message. Ahab does nothing about it. And so the Lord sends Elijah across the Jordan. Elijah is still in Israel, but he's on the other side of the Jordan now. Still within the borders, but this is the wilderness. We don't know where the Kareth Ravine is. Like, this is, this is wilderness. There is no economic structure. There are no stores at the Kareth Ravine. There's no place for him to get food. So if he's going to survive, the Lord is going to have to be the one that provides for him. Because there's no way for him to survive. And God does provide for him. Through the stream, and then through these ravens. Kathy's growth growth group guide this week uh, makes a nice point. She says, Ravens are in the list of unclean animals in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Israelites weren't supposed to eat anything they touched. Yet God uses them to supply Elijah's food, requiring Elijah to put away traditional ideas of clean and unclean. Think about Peter's vision in Acts 10. This was a lesson to Elijah and to us, that God sometimes uses unconventional methods, even unclean vessels, to accomplish his purposes. By the way, this is an ongoing lesson throughout this passage. Yahweh breaks boundaries. Elijah spends like the whole whole chapter unclean. But the Lord breaks all kinds of boundaries. The boundary of the Jordan, piety laws about cleanliness, national boundaries, even death. This is a major theme of this passage. The Lord Yahweh is a boundary-breaking God. And as a boundary-breaking God, the Lord wants followers who will follow where he leads. He's not out to make us into church people. That's not his purpose. He's not trying to make us into self-righteous rule followers. Or people who read the Bible and pray without loving others. The Lord is making us into people who are changed by his word. Changed with love. Who no longer are slaves to sin. Who repent of our evil. Who overcome evil with good. Who love one another, even our enemies. Who faithfully love God and others. Who mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Who listen to the word of God and then do what it says. So are we becoming more faithful to our Lord? Are we willing to follow where he leads? Or are we becoming self-righteous? Just a reminder, the Lord is more concerned about your faithfulness than he is about your piety. And the Lord provides for Elijah. Like the provision of manna in the wilderness during the Exodus, the Lord just provides what he needs every day, enough for today. Again, this is a place where there is no way, there's no structure for, for Elijah to be provided for. There's no stores, there's no economic structure in place. So the Lord must provide and he does. Just a reminder that the Lord is in control here. He's in control in Israel. He's in control across the Jordan. He's sovereign over the king, over Baal. 
He's repres- and Elijah is his representative. Elijah who is wild and unclean and brings the word of the Lord in really disruptive ways. Kind of like, if you remember John the Baptist in the early chapters of the Gospels, who prepared the way for, the way for Jesus. John was wild. He was a crazy dude, but he spoke the truth to the people and to the religious leaders of the day who rejected him, same religious leaders that later rejected Jesus. John spoke the truth to them. In the same way, Elijah is an outsider from beyond the Jordan, outside of the religious and political leadership, but God's word comes to him and comes to the nation through him. Okay, so God has invaded Israel, God's own people. God also is invading the nations. In the passage that Rob read for us, I'm going to read parts of it again. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, would you bring me a little water so I might have a drink? And as she was going, he called, and maybe a little piece of bread? (laughs) She turns at this point. Look, as your Lord, uh, as the Lord your God lives, she says, I don't have any bread. I've got a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering these last sticks so I can make my last loaf of bread and then die. Elijah's word comes to her, don't be afraid. Go home, do what you've said. First make a small loaf for me, and then something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord says. The jar of flour won't be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went and did as Elijah told her, and there was food every day for Elijah, for the woman and her family. The jar of flour wasn't used up. The jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. That's an amazing story. This stream dries up. The Lord sends Elijah to Sidon. Just a little background here. Um, Again on the map, Jezebel came from Sidon. That's where she's from. Just in the similar way to the way she has invaded the nation of Israel with Baal worship, now the Lord is going to invade Sidon with Yahweh worship. Yahweh is sovereign beyond the Jordan, but he's also sovereign over the nations. His care extends to Jews and to Gentiles. And Sidon, if you can see, it's way at the top of the map. It's the last city up at the top in the yellow in, in Phoenicia. And that's where Yahweh sends Elijah. This widow's about to die, and she gives bread to Elijah. This widow has no protection. A widow in a society like this needed the protection of someone, some male family member, to connect her to public life, to connect her kind of with the economic system. But she has none of these connections. She has no system, no way of surviving in this world. And this Gentile widow is going to be the focus of God's grace for the rest of this passage. Starts in this extreme act of faith. Elijah says, give me the first piece of bread. And then you can have your bread and go die. And she's like, okay, if the Lord says it, I'll do it. I mean, think about what that, given what Elijah has just done to Ahab, think about what she's doing. 
She's the opposite of Ahab in this passage. Right? She has nothing. She has no protection, no power. She's a Gentile woman, widow, with nothing. And the word of the Lord comes to her and she says, okay. And in an act that reminds me of like Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, she says, okay, if the Lord says it, I'll do it. Versus Ahab, who's Israel's king, the king of God's own people. And the word of the Lord shows up to him. He's got power, wealth, nah, nothing, no response. But Gentiles, widows, the weak and the poor and the needy, these are the focus of God's grace. God provides for them. He brings down kings and rulers and he raises up the weak. That's the kind of God that we worship. And Elijah promises that she will have enough. Elijah brings this word of hope from the Lord. And then the Lord provides. This miracle of oil and flour. The oil and the flour don't run out while, until the Lord brings rain in a way that can provide for her again. This isn't like overabundance. Let's just be clear. She's not about to become wealthy by this oil and flour. This is her daily bread. Again, just like manna in the wilderness. Just like the Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread. That's what the Lord provides for her. Which is abundance, given that she had nothing. It's abundance. It's an abundant life, abundant provision. But again, she's not going to be wealthy with that. But with God, there is plenty for all. There is enough. Our God makes everything, makes creation out of nothing. He can provide for us. Walter Brueggemann, one of the commentators on this passage, says, Scarcity is not a given of creation. It's an imposed power arrangement whereby some have too much so that others have too little. Prophetic faith, the faith of Elijah, refuses to accept that power arrangement and appeals behind it to the will and gift of the Creator. With God, there is enough. We don't live in a world where we have to hoard for ourselves because God provides. He provides our daily bread. He provides our needs. Then in the New Testament, Jesus tells us, I am the bread of life. If we trust in him, he tells us we won't go hungry again, that we will have abundant life in him. Again, that doesn't mean we're going to be wealthy. And it doesn't mean we won't go hungry but he will give us everything that we need to get through the next day if we trust in him. More than that, Jesus is one who provides abundance to, again, outsiders, outcasts, those forgotten by the nations or abused by the nations. In Jesus, there is abundance because God is a creator God. And Jesus is inviting us to participate with him in setting free the abundance of the world for all people, and especially for those who are outside or on the margins. Those who have lost jobs due to COVID. Prisoners, refugees, orphans, widows, victims of abuse. There is plenty to go around. We do not live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world 
where God, our creator, provides abundance. He provides enough. God calls us to give ourselves away and let him provide for us in the same way that we watch Jesus give himself away and allow God to take care of him. Okay, so God invades God's own people. God invades the nations. And then at the end of this passage, we see that God is invading even death. Starting in verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He got worse and worse. Finally, he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, you man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Elijah says, give me your son. He took him from her arms. He carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on his bed. And he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? He stretched himself out on the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. The woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. So the widow's son gets sick and dies. And the widow turns to Elijah and accuses Elijah and the Lord. She claims, Elijah, maybe your presence has drawn God's attention to me and my sin. He wasn't paying any attention to me before. But now that you're here, he's seen me and seen my sin. He's probably remembered some sin I committed a long time ago. She goes straight to shame. I'm suffering because I am and have done wrong. And she accuses Elijah of being the problem. Her accusation reveals a mistaken theology, although an understandable mistake. That's how Baal operated. That's what she's used to. But it's a mistake. Yahweh God is not focused on her sin. The passage doesn't say anything about her sin other than what she says. Elijah doesn't mention her sin. The Lord doesn't mention her sin. God isn't focused on our sin, but we too easily believe that God is trying to get us. He's looking for chances to punish us for something that we did or maybe even something we forgot about. Something that clings to us and causes us shame that we don't even remember. But God is not that God. That's not who God is. The Lord God loves to forgive and heal and make right. And we can see by the text It's totally uninterested by her sin, but very interested in God's actions on behalf of her family. God loves to forgive. So Elijah takes this dead boy. Again, he's unclean again. Touching a dead body would make you unclean. He spends this whole passage unclean. He takes this dead boy, lays him on his bed, and prays. And he he takes the woman's accusation, the widow's accusation, and he then asks God, did you do this? Did you cause this boy to die? He 
Ian Proven, uh, one of the commentators, says, this is the ultimate test of the Lord's authority. It's, the one th- it's one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can he do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the victim up? He can act across the border from Israel into Sidon, but is there a border that he ultimately cannot cross? A kingdom in which the Lord has no power? That's the test that we're going to see. Does the Lord have power in death? Elijah takes this unclean, dead body and makes it alive. He makes it clean. This is the way Jesus is, by the way. Jesus touched unclean things and unclean people and made them clean. That's the way, that's who our God is. He takes the unclean and makes it clean. He takes the darkness and turns it to light. He takes death and makes alive. Praise God. Again, this is a a lesson that Peter had to learn in Acts 10. But this is a lesson that runs all through scriptures. This is who our God is. He is not made unclean by unclean things. He makes unclean things clean. So Elijah lays on the boy and the boy and prays for him and the boy is healed. God defeats even death. He invades the power of death and brings life. And the widow says it, you are a man of God. The word, that of Lord, the word of the Lord that you speak is true. God uses Elijah to invade enemy territory all the way and even to and including death. Yahweh claims authority over all of it. It's all his. And we know and we can see Jesus is the great example of this. He walks into death itself and defeats it. Jesus invades even death. In Jesus, God has invaded this realm that's even beyond our sight. We can't even understand it. And in Jesus, God has invaded the realm of death. Jesus went to the darkest of all dark places and brought light. He went to the most unclean and made it clean and made it holy. He went into death itself and transforms it for the sake of life. Death is defeated. The darkness could not overcome him. The unclean could not taint Jesus. Jesus is king. He has overcome. Peter Lightheart, another commentator, says, this is the God of Jesus Christ, the God who comes to us in Christ Jesus. Will our God enter into the wilderness for us? He has done in Jesus Will he cross into the territory of the prince of this world for us? He has done in Jesus. Will he cross the boundary between the living and the dead for us? He has done in Jesus. We live in a bigger world because God is in it. He is always working. He is always invading. The question for us is, do we have eyes to see and ears to hear what he's up to? Are the lenses we're using set to the right prescription? We talked last week about repentance, lament, and keeping our eyes open for God's activity as a way of preparing for 
for God to show up. But once we see and we hear God's invading word, what are we going to do about it? First, I want to say we get our hands dirty. I like the pulling weeds uh, announcement from this morning. We're going to get our hands dirty. Elijah was constantly doing unexpected things. Things that made him ceremonially unclean. Things that violated the rules, but advanced God's rule in the world. That's our job. Receive God's gifts, wherever they come from. Associate and identify with people who don't look like the church's idea of a good, good Christian. Touch people who might make us nervous or might reshape our lives in significant ways. Let's get our hands dirty like Elijah did. So first, get our hands dirty. Second, live an abundant life. Live life in God's abundance. Are we trying to be people who control our economic situations like Ahab was doing? Participating in an economy, uh, trying to hoard for ourselves, not caring for the poor, or, or are we living an abundant life like Elijah? No food? Fine. The ravens can provide. No oil? No flour? That's fine. The Lord will keep the jars full. When we seek to control the systems for our benefit, we become like the powers of the world that oppress others. And we align ourselves with gods that are not really gods. Gods like money and power and economic theories. When we live, though, in the abundant life of God, we can share with others and sacrifice for them because there is always plenty. If God's the one doing the providing, we don't need to seek after the gods of the nations like Baal. God will provide. So get our hands dirty, live an abundant life, and do not fear. Elijah's words to the woman, don't be afraid. God is not trying to punish you for your sins or for sins you forgot that you even committed. He's not out to cause death because of our sin. God is gracious. His desire, his plan is to forgive and heal and bring life. God has, he has defeated sin and death in Jesus. There is no enemy that God has not already defeated. There is work to do. The enemies still exist, but they are defeated foes. God has already won. There's nothing we need to fear as we follow after God and pursue what he's called us to pursue. Praise God that Jesus is Lord. The prescription to our false vision is Jesus. He changes our lenses. He invades the dark places. He invades darkness with light. And he defeats all enemies up to and including death itself. And now he's reigning in a kingdom of light and life and he's inviting us to participate with him. Jesus is Lord. Praise God. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you are Lord. You are king. And 
because of your grace and your love for us, you've invited us to participate with you in your kingdom of light and life. We thank you. Thank you for the example of Elijah. And we pray that we would be more like the Sidonian widow and not like the king of Israel, Ahab. Lord, help us to respond to what you're doing, to follow you, to be willing to be unclean, to not be afraid, and to live in your abundance. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done and are doing in and through us. Father, we praise you today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you. Thank you for your work in us. We praise you in Jesus' name.